0: Lord, I do thank you for your word and being in the midst of us this morning, Lord. And Lord, we pray for the team in Uganda, uh, Bill, uh, that they'd continue to minister to the hearts who are in need there. You keep the hearts open there. And uh, may they have many converts. Lord, we also pray that you would give uh, all who have to travel in this downpour safe travels. There would be no accidents. Pray for the those who witnessed the uh, tragic uh, suicide on the bridge earlier this week that you would be with those families that you would comfort them and also lord for those families involved in the uh, shooting at the school Lord, that you would be there that there would be comforters and your servants there to minister to those who need help and again this lord this morning lord as we read your word that you would illuminate it, you would open our eyes to what you have to say, you would give us what we need to apply to our life. May we go and be witnesses uh, this week, in Jesus' name, amen. So Zechariah. Zechariah is a common name in the Old Testament, there's at least 27 Zecharias in the Old Testament, and the only details we have about this Zechariah are given to us in the book of Ezra, along with Obviously, the book in his own name. Uh, Ezra, I'm going to read one of those verses right now. Ezra, chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them helping them. So Haggai and Zechariah are two of the three post-exilic prophets. What that means is post-exile, after the Jews had returned from Babylon. Haggai and Zechariah are always referred to together. Uh, They're both in the ministry of encouraging the people. Uh, Encouraging them because their job is the people. I'm sorry, let me adjust that was to rebuild the temple after their return. And Ezra 3-6 through 6 gives a complete uh, background narrative of the time that this happened. Now leading up to this, though, and as always when I go through these books, a brief history of Judah leading up to this point. So the country of Judah had rebelled against God. They were warned by him several times through the prophets, including Jeremiah, that if they did not change, judgment was going to come upon them and this judgment was going to include 70 years of captivity. Now they ignored these warnings, and they were taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, who also destroyed the temple. Now Babylon eventually falls to the Medo-Persian Empire during the time of Judah's captivity. And the Jews are kept in captivity until Cyrus the Great of the Medes and the Persians issues a decree in about 538-539 B.C., allowing them to return to their homeland. Now, of all the hundreds of thousands of Jews that were exiled to Babylon and pulled away, only about 50,000 returned. And two years later, they begin to work on the temple because that's what Cyrus's decree says. It says, you're going to go return to the, your homeland and you're going to rebuild the temple. Now, Cyrus, according to some historians, was shown a prophecy in Isaiah, I believe it was, where he is mentioned by name. And some people believe it was the prophet Daniel who said, hey, Cyrus, look, you're mentioned in the book of Isaiah. This is what it says you're going to do. And Cyrus apparently looked at it and said, eh, God said it, let's do it, and issued the decree. So they lay the foundation. After about two years, they lay the foundation. They're getting uh, supplies together and everything. And once the foundation is laid, they get opposition from the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans come down from Samaria in uh, northern Israel, and they say, hey, we worship the same God you do. And the leaders say, no, 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 you don't. We are keeping ourselves separated from you. It is our God who has commanded us to build our temple. You have no part in this. when you look at Ezra, it seems a little cold at first, but when you realize that the Samaritans were people that were brought in and mixed God's religion with the religion of false gods, true Israel, Judah, didn't want any part of that. They didn't want a mixture of religion because that's what got them sent away to begin with, is uh, adulterating themselves with foreign gods. But the Samaritans are able to get opposition from not Cyrus the Great, but the king of Persia, after him, they say, hey, look, Jerusalem is known as this rebellious city. They always rise up. They always rebel against everyone who's over them. It'd be a good idea if you told them to stop rebuilding the temple. And so one of the Dariuses who's over the Medo-Persian Empire says, you know what? That's a good idea. Let's stop that. Because he doesn't realize what Cyrus the Great had said to the Jews before. So it actually says that by force of arms, I believe it's in Ezra 4, they were forced to stop building the temple. And due to that opposition, the work ceases for about fifteen years. Now at this point, Haggai the prophet comes in, and in about about September 1st, 520 BC, he encourages them and says, Look, you need to start rebuilding the temple. This is the command that God has given us. And so twenty-three days later, on September twenty-fourth, five twenty, and again these dates are here and there a few days based on who's interpreting or uh, analyzing the dates, the work begins on the temple. Now, on October 21st, Haggai gives a second prophecy in 520 BC. And soon after this is when Zechariah's ministry begins. Uh, About three three or four months after Haggai's first prophecy. Now, this is where our story is going to pick up. So in verse 1 of Zechariah, it says, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. So again, the timing of Zechariah's prophecy, it's two, three months after Haggai's first prophecy. Uh, and So this is about October, November 520, that's Zechariah's prophecy, prophesying. Verses 2 through 6. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserved, just as he determined to do. So again, the work had stopped. They'd been encouraged through Haggai to continue in the work. Now, the time that work had stopped, Israel had been experiencing some drought and mildew and hail and other uh, things that afflict an agricultural society. And all of this work had failed because the Jews were in sin. They had been force of arm. They had been forcibly told to stop building the temple. But it was still God's command to do so. And instead of fighting back or uh, They could have sent a entourage to the Medes and the Persians to Babylon and said, hey, look, we were commanded in the first place, but they didn't do that. Instead, for 15 years, they kind of were in a spiritual slumber. They didn't do anything. They didn't build anything. And so they kind of had all these curses on the land because of a lack of disobedience or because of disobedience. And again, Haggai came in first. And when Zechariah came on the scene, the people had begun working on the temple. But, as it says here in these first couple verses, they had not as yet turned their whole hearts to him. And so that's why they were suffering the drought, another reason. Now, Haggai did stir the people. He stirred the people, and 23 days after he spoke, they began building. And it was through fear and obedience with his preaching that that happened. But, if two months later, Zechariah still has to say, return to me, Says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, their heart was still not in the right place, so if you 're doing something because well, God said to do it, but you 're not following after it with your whole heart, it 's still just religion, and this is the problem that they were facing, and that 's why it says uh, uh, let me blank on verses. Um, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. It's got to be your whole heart that's put into it. It's not just your heart as we would think of it. It's the inmost bowels of your body, as the Hebrews would uh, say. It's the inmost part of you. So again, two months later, he's calling them to hearken unto the Lord, to come back with their heart. And again, there was no repentance. They were doing it, but they were still in these little sins that they were not repentant of. And it's interesting because Romans 14.23 says, whatever does not come from faith is sin. Now, they were doing this work, but they weren't doing it out of faith necessarily yet. They were doing it out of a fear because Haggai had stirred them to. And while he was able to motivate them to finish rebuilding the temple, Zechariah's main focus is getting the people to rebuild their relationship with God at the same time. And that was the more important action that needed to take place, or the rebuilding of the temple, like I said, was just an empty religion. But to do that, again, they had to repent so their relationship could be restored. Now, just as when we wrong somebody, our relationship with that person becomes broken, we always have to go back and repent or change our mind about what we had done, confess the sin, in order to restore the relationship. When husbands and wives argue, usually someone has to repent because someone was wrong. They have to change their mind about it. Uh, Any relationship, you have to do that. And the same is true when we sin against God. Now, there has been this debate in Christianity that, well, I've repented already when I became a Christian. Why do I have to repent again? Well, when we become a Christian, we do repent and we change our mind about who Jesus is and we place our faith in him. But we still sin because we're still stuck in this body of flesh. So when we do sin, the relationship is broken. But to restore that relationship, we do have to confess that sin and still repent of it. So we still have to restore our relationship when we've sinned. And so we should be, if we're sinning, constantly repenting and changing our mind about that sin. It doesn't mean we weren't saved or aren't saved. It simply means... We've separated ourselves from God because of that sin. That's why James says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So if you feel far from God, you're the one who moved. It's like a couple who sits on a couch. Sometimes one of my wife and I are sitting on the couch and watching TV. She'll get up for some reason, and when she sits back down, she won't sit next to me. She'll sit on another part of the couch. And she goes, how come you don't sit next to me? And I go, well, you're the one who moved. She got up and moved. And that's 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 a lighthearted version of uh, <laughs> moving from God, but it's the same principle. Now, I do believe this returned remnant did have faith. I believe they were a people of faith, but as I, and I believe that because it takes a great deal of faith to return to the land of your captivity where they had been established for seventy years. Uh, they had homes. They had businesses. And they had to go to a homeland, or they chose to go to a homeland that was desolate and in need of rebuilding. There was nothing that appeared to be worth saving in Jerusalem and Israel. And when Nehemiah goes there 20 years later to rebuild the wall, he's walking around and he goes, in my vernacular, this place is a dump. And it was. The houses were broken down. The walls were broken down. It didn't look like anything was worth saving. So these people had a great deal of faith to leave everything they'd had and grown to know for 70 years to come back to their homeland. And again, they probably returned knowing it was going to be difficult, but they returned anyway. Now, Zechariah begins his appeal for repentance by looking at history to show the people their need for repentance. The first thing he says is, your father sinned. And then he says, when your father sinned, I sent them the prophets he sent them Jeremiah he sent them Habakkuk he sent them Zephaniah Isaiah and no doubt many more unnamed prophets that are not in the Bible so he sent all these people and then he says but your fathers didn't listen and your fathers where are they now they're dead the prophets where are they now they're dead but what's left my words which I spoke through the prophets to your fathers still stands God's word still stands The people who sin, who need to hear God's word, they're going to die. All of us are going to die. The prophets, they're going to die. But the words that they spoke, God's words, those will always stand. What they needed to do is they need to look around and see and realize that God fulfills his word. Their city and their temple were in ruins. The wall was broken down. Their fathers died in a foreign land. The reality of God's fulfilled word should have been enough to take his commandments seriously. But again because of suffering and tribulation, and those things happened, they were discouraged, and so they kind of, you know, got, again, got into a spiritual slumber. Now, we have an even greater view of history and the fulfillment of God's word than even they did. And so we always need to be asking ourselves, is there something that we should be doing? Is there something God has asked us to do that maybe we're being lackadaisical on? Is there some sin that we're not willing to let go that we need to repent of and that's holding us back from what God has called us to do? We have so much fulfilled scripture that we can look at, that we can trust in. We can look at the Bible and go, look at everything God has done. Look at everything he has fulfilled. Yeah, there's some things that aren't fulfilled, but everything he's done already, complete trust that he's going to complete the rest of it. And that's what they needed to do. They needed to look at the past and God's fulfillment so they could trust him in the future. Verse 7. Verse 7 through 9. On the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. And again, this is three months after his first address. During the night I had a vision, and there before me was a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. I asked, what are these, my lord? The angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. So simply speaking in this this vision, we have one man on horseback leading other horses, and their riders are patrolling to and fro throughout the whole earth. So Zechariah sees them among myrtle trees in a ravine. And there also seems to be an angel who is an interpreting angel uh, what is going on to Zechariah as well. That Commentators go back and forth as to whether that's the case or one of the writers is interpreting for him. It's not a big deal. Um, the colors of the horses may or may not mean anything. There's no consist- consensus among commentators among that as well, but it doesn't affect the message that the vision is meant to convey. Verse 10 through 11. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. We have gone throughout the whole earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. So a myrtle tree, and I had to look this up because I don't know what that was. Pastor Bill probably would. Uh, a myrtle tree is a laurel or a type of evergreen tree uh, and I've, I've never seen one except on the internet. Um, but again, it's an evergreen tree. Um, and some commentators say that it's possibly a symbol of the people of Israel. Now, the man, or this man in 111, is the angel of the Lord. And I believe this is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. Many times in the Old Testament, when it says the angel of the Lord, it is referring to a pre-incarnate or pre-Jesus coming in the flesh version Of Jesus. Uh, We see other examples of that in Genesis 16, Genesis 22, uh, Judges 2. So, uh, this is Jesus. He's God. So, if the myrtle tree is indeed a symbol of Israel, and the angel of the Lord is Jesus then this is actually a small, beautiful picture of how the Lord stands in the midst of his people, even in times of suffering, despite what they were going through. Sorry. I always have problems with this thing. You can't hear me at all? How about now? Thus saith the Lord. So if the myrtle is indeed a symbol of Israel, oh, I can hear myself too and the angel of the Lord is Jesus, then it is a beautiful picture of how the Lord stands in the midst of his people, even in the times of suffering. Now these patrollers of the earth, what do they find but in earth, or the Gentile nations, that are at rest and in peace? But while these nations are at rest and in peace, the nation of Judah is struggling and suffering. Am I losing it again? If I have a big enough head, you'd think it'd stay on. Now, so what do these patrolling angels find? They find in earth Gentile nations that are at rest and in peace. But while the Gentile nations of the world are at rest, uh, the nation of Judah is struggling and suffering. Now, again, remember with me, they're trying to rebuild the temple. And as I said, 15 years previous in 423, by force of arms, they're made to cease. And I find it interesting because... The world is at ease when it can get God's work to cease. Or it's at ease when it can at least make God's people suffer while they're trying to do the work. And I think that's an interesting comparison because, you know what? Right now, and again, I don't agree with everything our president's going to do. But the church was seriously praying that Clinton would not become president everybody was up in arms against it as far as i know in the church they didn't want our president a lot of people and the world was like yes this is going to happen there's no way trump's going to win we're at ease we're in peace And all of a sudden there's an upset and the roles are now reversed now the church is like god answers prayer god is god's doing his work and what's the world the world is not at ease or in peace i can look at my facebook and my friends who are very liberal and they are not at ease They are very up in arms. But it's an interesting parallel or interesting uh, thing there. Verse 12 Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry these 70 years? So the next thing we see. The angel of the Lord, when he hears the report from the patrolling angels of the suffering of Israel, he intercedes on Israel's behalf. And the question he intercedes with is, how long? They had returned, but they were still suffering. Now, I think this is interesting as well. The angel of the Lord intercedes. That's Jesus interceding for his people. And doesn't Jesus as our high priest intercede for us? He's the one who interceded for us on God's behalf so that we could come into the throne room of grace. I think another interesting parallel. Now, with Israel's suffering, it says in Jeremiah twenty-nine, ten through eleven, This is what the Lord says, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. So where was their hope in their future? They had returned. We find out from Haggai, though, that the blessing was withheld because of their disobedience and not finishing the temple. They had built for themselves elaborate houses. It says paneled houses in Haggai. But God's house was still in ruins. Their original captivity as well was caused by their disobedience and not returning to God as well. So the question is sometimes, again, asked by people, why is God allowing us to suffer? And the question is, Sometimes it's our own decision to stay in disobedience, and that's why we're suffering. Now, sometimes we're going to suffer for doing good, and that's a good thing. We get rewarded for that in heaven. But sometimes we're simply miserable and suffering because we're not obedient, and we need to be obedient. And such was the case with Israel here. He had a future and a hope for them. He had blessings. He had promises that he wanted to fulfill. But God's promises have this little conditional thing at the beginning. It says, if... If you do this, if you do this, blessing is going to come. But if you're not going to do these things that God's asking, he has to withhold blessing. And if he's withholding blessing, it's curses that come instead. So verses 13 through 15. So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. And I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they went too far with the punishment. But this did not make, I'm sorry, that's where the verse ends. So, God used wicked nations to judge Israel. But this did not make those nations who judged Israel any more innocent. In fact, they were probably worse. They were worse. Babylon, Assyria, they were worse. Now, the word zealous here in ancient Hebrew or jealous for Jerusalem comes from the Hebrew word with the idea to become intensely red. And it has the thought of a face becoming flushed with deep emotion. That's the care that God has for Israel. That's the genuine care that God has for all of his people, not just Israel, but us as well. But that's the strongest word he can use to say how much he's loving He loves them and cares for them, even though they're in the midst of disobedience. Now, while he did have to bring them to judgment in the past, and he has to bring them in judgment where they are right now with these agricultural uh, diseases and curses, he doesn't want to keep them in that place. Uh, He was using these nations as an instrument of judgment against Israel. But he says of those nations, they went farther than he intended. And they themselves were brought to destruction for this as well as their own sins. And again, though, he didn't want to keep them there. But he had to bring them to a realization of how far they had fallen. Verses 16 and 17. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to, to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. These are good and comforting words for the people that were going through the struggles that they were going through. They had been there nearly 20 years, and the city was, as as I said, still in mostly ruins. But it was comforting for them, comforting words, because God was jealous for them. He was zealous for them, a deep emotional attachment to them. It was comforting because his mercy was extended. They didn't deserve it, but he extended it. And despite past destruction, God was still going to help them rebuild. He still sent prophets, just like he did in the past, to encourage them. To show them the right way. If he didn't love them, he wouldn't have sent anybody. He would have just let them go their own merry way, right down to hell. But that's not what he did. I believe Lord Almighty appears seven or eight times in chapter one. And that describes God who is sovereign over all, He is Almighty. He controls everything. Nothing is out of his control. Nothing is out of his power. And I think that's on purpose in this chapter. And that's probably one of the most encouraging things that I, can, I myself can grab from this chapter. That it doesn't matter how miserable certain circumstances can be in your life. And I've never faced what they're facing. But God is almighty. God is all powerful. He's over it. He's got it under control. And we're in his hands. But again, seven, eight times, and go through and highlight that in your Bible. So you remember that God's in control of all the situations. And just when the situation does appear hopeless, we need to keep in mind that God does identify with our sufferings, and He is in charge of the future. Just as with Israel, it's our job to repent, confess our sins, and believe the comforting words He offers up. And then it's His responsibility which he always fulfills because he is faithful, to respond to our faith and work out his perfect will for us. Now, verse 18 and 19. Then I looked up, and there before me were four horns. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? He answered me, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So Zechariah's second vision, he sees horns that are responsible for the scattering of both Israel and Judah. And horns are biblical symbols for power, usually of a nation or a ruler, and you can see this uh, in Amos 6.13, Daniel chapter 7, 7-12, through 12, and several other places. There were four great world powers responsible for scattering the Jews to the nations. Now we know Assyria conquered and removed Israel from their land. Babylon, in turn, conquered Assyria and then removed Judah from her place, destroying Jerusalem in the process. Now Persia conquered Babylon. The Greeks conquered. Greeks conquered Persia and then the Romans conquered the Greeks. Now this scenario I just gave you lists five nations. There are is some dispute among scholars as to the identity of these four nations because they're not specifically mentioned. Many believe the four nations match the four listed in Daniel 7, which I gave you, Babylon, Persia, Greece and Rome. Others people suggest that Assyria, since they are the ones who took the northern kingdom of Israel away, other people still include Egypt. I'm going to get back to that after I read verses 20 to 21 and tell you what I think. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I asked, what are these coming to do? He answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise their head. But the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. So these craftsmen correspond to the four horns horns we have just mentioned. And they are sent to destroy those nations or horns that have scattered Israel and Judah. Now, looking at verses 18 through 21, it seems that each horn became a craftsman that destroyed the previous horn. So, this is the scenario as I believe it to be. Assyria, Assyria's horn was destroyed by the craftsman Babylon. Babylon's horn was destroyed by the craftsman Persia. Persia's horn was destroyed by the craftsman Greece, and Greece's horn was destroyed by the craftsman Rome. But what about Rome? Were they a horn or were they a craftsman? Now, Rome did dislodge some of the Jews from the promised land in about 135 AD after a revolt by something I can't pronounce well, Bar Kokhba. And then they renamed the land Syro-Palestina, which causes our modern-day Palestine issues. However, Rome was never really overtaken. She was eventually split between the Western and the Eastern Empire, the city of Rome in the west, and Constantinople in the east. Officially, the last empire or emperor was Romulus with his reign ending in 606 AD. But Rome's ideals and governmental style lived on. It traveled to Germany, where the Kaisers ruled for centuries, Kaiser is the German word for Caesar. It also traveled to Russia where the czars would rule until 1914 with the assassination, assassination of Nicholas II. Czar being the Russian, Russian word for Caesar. We also see in the Roman Catholic Church, the titles for Roman Caesars, Pontifex Maximus, the title held as overseer of the pagan religions and the Bishop of Bishops, the title held as overseer of the Christian church. Now, The second title was held first by Constantine when he declared Christianity a state religion. And I'm not saying anything negative about the Catholic Church. I'm just saying that's where it comes from. Now, additionally, we see from Daniel's prophecy in chapter 2 that the feet of iron and clay are the nation that will rule in the end times, which will be reminiscent of the Roman Empire. So those are things that make you wonder. That is my take on it. That is where I am at the moment at least. Um, I don't believe the Roman Empire has been conquered yet. I believe that that is the empire, that the giant hands take a stone and throw it and destroy the empire in the end. That is when Christ sets up his millennial kingdom. So four craftsmen, I believe, are Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. The four horns, I believe, are Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. That's my opinion from study. Feel free to study it yourself. I am curious what you come up with. Now, what purpose did God have in revealing this vision to the returned captives? So as we just saw, his people needed to realize that God was sovereign, as I mentioned, God Almighty over all creation, and that it was him alone who was responsible for their standing where they were in the ruins of Jerusalem, in Judah, at that exact moment. He had taken them full circle, and what they needed to do at that point was repent and obey. They had gone from disobedience to Babylon. Many of them repented in Babylon, including Daniel, and Daniel prayed for repentance of his nation. Cyrus brought them back. They were where they had come from to begin with. Now they just needed to make sure they didn't fall into the same sins as their fathers which is what he brought up at the beginning. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I asked, where are you going? And he answered me, to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. While the angel who was speaking to me was leaving, another angel came to meet him and said to him, run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. So apparently Jerusalem is being measured to make sure that it is large enough for the multitudes God will bring to it. Now in the time of Zechariah, it seems strange, because as I mentioned, not many people returned. And it seemed that Jerusalem was big enough. If you read later in either the end of Ezra or Nehemiah, most of the people weren't actually living in Jerusalem. In fact, they had to draw lots to find out who they were going to put in Jerusalem to live there. So it was pretty much a desolate town. It's almost like if someone came, if there were 10 people in front here, and all of a sudden somebody came in the back and started measuring to make a bigger sanctuary, when obviously we had 90 free chairs or however many the sanctuary fits. Now, this kind of reminds me of a movie. If you've ever seen Facing the Giants, it's a McKendrick Brothers movie. It's a Christian movie. And in the movie, it's a a football movie. This coach is being talked to by, uh, I believe it's the janitor. I forget who he is specifically. But he basically every day prays for the students in the school. And he talks to the coach and says, look, there were two farmers in a drought. Both prayed for rain, but the one with faith plowed and prepared the field for that rain. Which one displayed true faith that God was going to act and make it rain? That's obviously the guy who prepared his field. Now, God is showing them, look, you're thinking that nothing's going to happen in Judah right now. It looks small. Nobody's come back. It looks kind of pitiful. But let's do some measurements because I'm going to do a really big thing in the future and this is going to be a place where everybody's going to come. Not just Jews, not just the tribes of Israel. He says, I'm going to bring the Gentiles. This is going to be people of faith who come to Jerusalem because of what I'm going to do. And as I said, God's sovereignty runs the gamut in this book, especially chapter 1, and he encourages them here to have faith because he's in control. And again, I bring up the election. If Clinton had won, would we be fretting or trusting that God was in control? Now, I didn't vote for Obama. But you know what? I wasn't worried that he was president because no matter what, he's not my God. God is my God. He's got everything in control. And they're going to continue passing ridiculous laws, whether at state level or government level. And it, regardless... I'm not going to let those things move me, and they shouldn't move any of us. Because as long as we're sticking to what the word of God says and obeying it and being faithful, we don't have to worry about it. We're not going to be moved. Now, it says God promises to bring so many people to Jerusalem that the crowds will overflow the walls of the city, but that it won't matter because God will be their protection and their walls. Now, I believe this refers to the millennial kingdom in the future. God is yet going to use this as a motivation to mobilize the Jews in Babylon. Now, they didn't know when that kingdom was going to take place. They didn't call it the millennial kingdom. We call it that. But he wanted them to look forward to it. Just as we look forward to Christ's return and we mobilize ourselves to make sure we're being obedient to do what he asks, this is what he wanted them to do. Mobilize themselves. Be ready. Be ready. I'm going to set up my kingdom. So he wanted them ready. Now, verse 6 and 7. Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Come, Zion, escape you who live in daughter Babylon. The day was going to come when Persia herself would be judged for her sins as Babylon was. And God was calling them out while there was opportunity. And as we mentioned previously, very few of the Jews were taken Captivity returned. Now, while some stayed to fulfill the promise of God had for them, such as Nehemiah, many others remained behind for no other reason than for comfort and security when God had called them to do the work in Jerusalem. Now, throughout the Bible, Babylon is used as an idea as well as a city. So, if Jerusalem carries the idea of God's city, Babylon carries the idea of the city of the world. Zechariah's call to come out of Babylon, therefore, is both a literal and figurative uh, command. Because the world is comfortable, it has everything we need, well, everything except for one thing, and that's God. And once we are saved, we're called out of that world in in the sense of not imitating its behavior and holding to its ideals. However, the Bible does say we're not supposed to isolate ourselves, but to make sure that we impact the world for Christ. Verses 8 and 9. For this is what the Lord Almighty says. After the glorious one has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. The phrase, apple of his eye, is used to describe Israel a couple times in scripture. And it was used, as always, to describe something precious, easily injured, and demanding protection, such as our eyes, because we can't replace them. Verses 10 to 13. Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people I will live among you and you will know that the Lord almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Why should daughter Zion or Israel shout and be glad? And this is, this is the Messiah speaking regarding the time of the millennial kingdom, but he's giving them reasons why they should be shouting and be happy. He wants them to be motivated. He wants them to be joyful because he himself is going to come and live among them. He wants them to be joyful because many nations, not just them, will be joined to the Lord and he will dwell among them, as I just said. And it says that twice in those verses. God's desire is for Israel. God's desire to bless Israel was never intended to stop at Israel but to use them as a channel for blessing many nations. He also wants them to be joyful because he's going to again choose Jerusalem, a place where he told David, his servant, that his name would dwell forever. And he's going to come back and he's going to fulfill that. Now again, these verses are encouragement in the rebuilding of the temple. Now, when it says, shalt and be glad, we, we as Christians... We hear the promises of God and even see some of them fulfilled. And this is the reaction we should all have. And, you know, when you become a Christian long enough, sometimes you get caught in the, well, I've been a Christian for a while, and, you know, the flesh may get in way of your eyes and block you from seeing how truly wonderful we have it. And it becomes ho-hum, and that's not what we want. But we need to constantly look at the promises of God. And they have these book, the promises, are the promise book or they have a bunch of them but just reading scripture and seeing that god fulfills his promises he does what he says he's going to do when you know you are precious in the sight of god when you understand the sacrifice he made when you know that he lives not just among us but for us he lives in us this should be the natural response of a grateful people joyful shouting and glad And so when we review these three visions of zechariah We learn that God watches the nations, that he knows what they are doing, and that he's going to judge them for their sins, especially for their treatment of Israel. Also, for the fact that Israel and Jerusalem have a spectacular future where Messiah will return to cleanse them, and that glory of God will dwell in the midst of them. Now, in the Lord's Prayer, we are taught to pray, Thy kingdom come. Because when we do, we are praying for the peace of Jerusalem. There's another verse in Psalms that says that, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But there is not going to be any peace in Jerusalem until the Prince of Peace reigns there. So we need to be vigilant to take the gospel and to get the last person saved because when that happens, that's when the rapture happens. That's when we keep our eyes to the skies and we look for his return. And that's when his kingdom is going to come. i to call... The worship team up so that we can do uh, communion It's the first Sunday of the month. Let me close in prayer. Lord I do thank you for Zechariah and just with the two chapters that we have Lord we've gone through. We know that you fulfill your promises. We know that you are the God Almighty who is in control. We don't have to worry about the trials and tribulations around us. They may affect us, but they don't affect our standing with you. They don't affect our eternal destination. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to live a life that's glorifying to you. And Lord, as they were rebuilding the temple, Lord, help us to continually rebuild and build up our relationship with you. Help us to draw closer to you each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.